Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Today, I have the honor of talking with Danielle Cohen. Here's her official bio, and then I'll share a little personal note. Danielle Cohen is a photographer, teacher, and writer based in Southern California. She's known for having an unparalleled talent for helping others see and express the beauty and power within and around them. You will find Danielle's work in well-known magazines, books, book covers, and on many influential websites. Currently, she offers private sessions, retreats, and workshops. You can find out more via her newsletter or on her website at danielle-cohen.com. So she also is living in Southern California by the seaside with her four babes, which are, you know, she has three boys, one girl. Um, some of them are, are in college or one's off and another one soon. She lives with her husband, their sweet chihuahua, Elvis, and her two turtles, Sophie and Winston. You can find Danielle online at danielle-cohen.com. And on a personal note, Danielle is my personal photographer, and she was the one to capture the cover of my book, The Art of Money, which was no small feat. She's also done all the photos on my website. We've uh, we've had we 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 have broken bread. Is that how you say it? To break bread is broken. <laughs> we've, we've, how do you say that? We've broken bread together. I think together. that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> um, quite a bread few times. Bread and chocolate. Bread and chocolate and wine, all of it. And I'm so honored and happy to have you here today, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Hmm. So. I have been wanting to interview Danielle for some time for a few reasons. Um, one, because of the work that she does. Um, two, because we've had many, we've had we've had a lot of sharing <laughs> behind the scenes, and I've gotten to, I've been privy to some really beautiful and sensitive and powerful and empowering money stories that she's been through. Um, she was a single mama for over a decade. Now she's partnered again. And I, I've gotten to hear some stories about that. And I've always wanted 
I've always wanted to share them. And so over the years I've been like, can we have an interview? Is it time? And she's always said yes. But um, it was just finally time in this Money Memoir series to talk about some of her experiences and journeys as a single mom, how she did money during that time, how she was raising three boys, how she's doing money again as she's partnered. And recently there was a huge triumph Um a money issue, a money challenge that she's been dealing with for many, many years that I was that is sensitive and it's very powerful and empowering what happened recently and how she overcame that. So I have been really excited um for her to share this story with us. So let's begin. I always like to begin by asking everyone if they could share a snapshot. So can you please share Danielle a snapshot of your life? and family and work right now to begin. Mm, okay. So I suppose the snapshot of my life right now, I'll start with with who's under my roof, since that seems <laughs> to be um, sort of a transitional thing in these last few years. And at this moment, I have everyone. So my oldest, who is 22 and had gone away to college for a couple of years, for a variety of reasons, and one of them being his own financial evolution and his shift in in growth uh, around what what made sense for him in terms of paying for college and and all of that. So uh, he left a very beautiful, prestigious, lovely private university to come home and live at home and commute to a local equally prestigious but much larger public university. Um, and that was a big decision for him So and been wonderful for us. And an interesting thing as a mother to go through the leaving and then the returning. Um, and it was two years, so it was significant. But he's been back now for a little over a year, maybe a year and a half. And then my next oldest child uh, graduated from high school last year. And he also, he made the decision right out of the gate that he wanted to be as cost effective as possible. So he's living at home and commuting a little bit further to a state university. And then I have uh, another son who's now a junior, which is unbelievable. And I have a little girl who's eight and they're all with us. And then my husband and my mom, because my father passed away in 2016 and we were in the process of buying a house together since we were sharing the caretaking and um, so she stayed but she will be leaving in January so we're in yet another transition so there's this kind of there's been this theme of you know life is always I suppose transforming and transitions are happening it's just been a very literal kind of who's living with us transitional space since 2014 when Luke graduated. So it's a really interesting thing and and um, I guess teaching me a lot about staying in the flow of that and allowing space for all of the emotions and things that come up but not having to get too stuck in any one of them because that just wouldn't work with this much of it. Um, and so that's on the on the home front. That's kind of the the snapshot in a very very brief, high level sense. And with my work, this is the time of year where I sort of I like to say that I'm taking an in breath. So I typically um, I don't usually book a lot of sessions 
or any, technically. I, I kind of closed my books from November to December. And and my thought is always, and, you know, every year I'm refining it, but my thought is always that, okay, I'm going to use this time to really work on my business as opposed to the work itself. Um, and I also allow it to be a time where I get to just say yes to things that show up because November and December there's always some photographic need that shows up for somebody. And it ends up being quite full, and especially between that and just all of the life and personal things that come up during this time of year. So while I call it an in-breath, I recognize that it's not actually all that much of an in-breath because it's still quite expansive and busy. Yeah. 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 Because, and, you know, normally you travel um, throughout the year for your photography shoot. So that's happening all year. And then it sounds like November right. and December, you pause the travel, but yet still people knock on your door. I know recently right. this is really unique and unusual and special, but someone, it might have been an old doula client, asked you not to be a doula, but to take photos of a birth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So lovely. <laughs> yeah, so I, I and it, as it turned out, her midwives were stuck uh, uh, in traffic because I'm in Southern California, so... Um, so I got to sort of dance between doula and photographer, and it was truly such a gift. And and work that I, yeah, like you said, I wouldn't do it regularly um, because it's just not a match for my lifestyle. But I absolutely love getting to drop into that space and be present for that. And it's a time, too, where, you know, so many of my clients are creative entrepreneurs of, or healers of one kind or another, but I so often get the, would you, would you do a family session? So I've done a few family sessions for some of my clients, and that's really fun to do, especially the ones that have older, you know, families, and they only get their kids all in one house once or twice a year. Right. So, yeah, there's all kinds of fun things like that that come up. That I get to do. Really yeah, funny. if we were local to you, that would be wonderful. We'd be like, please, <laughs> please. I've had people fly too. out to me for it. Yeah, mm. it's really fun. Mm. Wonderful. So let's segue a little bit into your relationship to money. And as a beginning, I'd love to hear. Just in general, what are the emotions? What's the main combination, cocktail of emotions that comes up when you think about money, when you talk about money, when you go to have money conversations? It may be all different emotions or it may be the same. And I'm wondering if you have the same emotions that come up now that came up five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago, or are they different? You know, I think that... um Interestingly, I think that my relationship to money has 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 and is also in its own kind of transformation transformational space um, for many many years, probably the majority of my life uh I didn't give money a whole lot of weight. I sort of lived in a little bit of, I think, a little bit of a magical thinking kind of relationship with money uh, that I both appreciate because I see how it allowed me to live outside of the limitations of my reality. 
And also I see the places where it created some money hardship that I have had to deal with. So, um, so my emotions around it now are varied for sure. I would say they vary along the, if fear is on one end of the uh, spectrum, fear, anxiety, stress, all of those kind of living on one end of the expect, uh, spectrum and excitement and possibility living on the other end of the spectrum with maybe just sort of peace somewhere in the middle, I would say that I dance along that spectrum. Mm. Um, and and to be really, really, I guess another big emotion, it's so funny too as I'm saying this, how this mirrors so many other things, of course, um, is grief. I definitely have some grief that that comes from time to time. And I, I love that you're being honest and sharing a full spectrum with us, right? That there's fair anxiety sometimes, there's excitement and possibility sometimes, there's moments of peace yeah. sometimes, and there's also moments of grief. Yeah. Yeah, and grief, of course, embodies a whole a whole little handbasket of other emotions. So yeah, 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 and it's something you know. I've mentioned this to you before. This is this topic, particularly um, where we're going inside of me as as single mama and repartnered single mama and all those other things, and the big big story. It's not something that I've talked much about outside of deep personal conversation. It, this is by far the most personal conversation that I've had in any kind of public forum. So, and, yeah, keep going. No, so it's, um, so I really don't have any filters or any practiced ways um, to to be elegant or eloquent or even necessarily articulate. So we're going to just kind of stumble through it. But yeah, I don't I don't have another way to be with it at this point other than just raw. Which I've I've I felt the sensitivity and the excitement in me that I'm I'm gonna get to I you know, know I'm gonna get you to, get to midwife and I get to midwife, yeah, yeah. And, and help bring them um out in the world because we had a really beautiful um long journey when I was on a road trip to Santa Fe. <laughs> You were in Southern California, and we, yeah. I don't know if it was an hour or an hour and a half or two hours, I don't know, but we talked about a lot of this, you know, as I was on the road by myself on a solo journey um, a few months I know, ago. imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> I know, imagine that. So even as you've been preparing for this, knowing that you are going to be, you know, one of the folks that I was interviewing for this Money Memoir series, what have been the thoughts and feelings well, I mean, truthfully, because a life is just, you know, kind of all-encompassing, I wouldn't say that I've been preparing for it. It's been in my consciousness. I've been, ex- I've had moments of total excitement. I mean, this is, the thing is, is that I, this is, this topic is something I've wanted to speak about for a long time and I've intended to write about. And I, I still do, um, because, you know, there's so much there, and I, I think about what it could have been like for me to hear some other voices, and um, and just because I, sometimes the stories need to live somewhere besides within ourselves. Um, 
so that part has been percolating, um, but I didn't really, I didn't prepare. I don't have, you know, I didn't, I'm just here and showing up and the stories and it's so different, right? It's so different than when you're being interviewed on a particular topic and you're bringing um, a skill or, or even a specific situation or recipe of sorts to the table, then you might sit and, and think that through. But with this, it's really, it's really a discovery for me, too, to hear like, huh, on this side of things, because I really am on, this is really, for me, the first time I've been on this side of this equation. Yeah. And, yeah. and so for me, it's a discovery of, oh, interesting, let's hear what's there. And I'm, you know, so that's, that's just how that looks. So we're gonna we're gonna clarify what we mean by this side of the, this side of the equation, um, and we're gonna dip into the grief. And I'd I'd love to segue first. Let's go back a little bit further into your family history. Yeah. And then yeah. and then we can continue forth, you know, into being a young mama and being married and single parenting and this whole story that's come from it. This whole big money thing that you had to overcome. Um, so please share with us a bit about growing up in your family and the messages that were passed down around money, the patterns that were passed down, conscious and consciously, positively, negatively. You know, what what environment did you grow up in and how did it impact you and shape you around mm. money, around yeah. your relationship to money? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I grew up um, I'm an only child, and I ha- was raised by a single mama, and she, but my parents were together for part of my childhood. Uh, we moved a lot. I went to 18 different schools, so there was a lot of transition and a lot of moving, a lot of upheaval, and my parents' life was, you know, rather tumultuous, so that really sort of took center stage, I don't know what it would have been like had it been different. So I don't know if it's, you know, it's been really fascinating to live with my mom for this last year and a half because you sort of get to re-experience your childhood in certain ways or how they do or didn't, did or didn't parent you. And uh, so, so sometimes I think, wow, Maybe it wasn't circumstances, but it's more her nature. Um, but there wasn't, there was very little in terms of conscious money teaching uh, from either of my parents. My dad was just an inconsistent presence and not a, not a financial provider. So he sort of showed up the way he wanted to when he wanted to. And my mom, we... The majority of my childhood, maybe it's actually split when you take into account adolescence, but the majority of my childhood was in Canada. And in in that environment, with things being the way they were in terms of socialized medicine and help for a single mother, it wasn't um, like the money, the lack of money wasn't super significant. I wasn't super aware of it. we, I always lived in apartments, but I didn't think anything really different about it. In fact, I found it sort of comforting to have voices on the other side of the wall. And 
And then when we moved here to California, it was a bigger deal that we didn't have a car. It was a bigger deal. I went to an affluent school, but I lived on the other side of the avenue that sort of split the wealthier from the less than wealthy. Um, so those things, in a way, were present, but I wasn't even totally conscious of it. And I remember one of the most distinct things that stuck out to me is I, all of my friends lived in houses, and they lived in, you know, big, beautiful houses on the hills. And I can remember that they, they, for the most part, and there's a couple of them that stand out in my mind, they had allowances, and they had to, like, you know, work to get money to do things, or they had to wait for their allowance, that sort of thing. And I didn't have that in my house. It all came down to if the money was there, it was given to me. And there wasn't any parameters around it or really a whole lot of questions or guidance. Um, so there was just just yeah, or conditions. Or conditions. Or conditions. Yeah, no, no, no. There, I would say that uh, my mother's gesture is extraordinarily generous. And um, and in a, in a really unconditional way. Now, as a quick side note, one of the other things that has, has been happening in the last year and a half that's been really interesting is since my, so not to confuse anybody, my biological dad passed away in 95. My person who I call my dad, who was my stepdad, died a year and a half ago. And since then, I've, I've been witness and at times um, consoler to or space holder for my mom's grief and my mom's sort of kind of in this late lifetime going through her own waking up to some of her own magical money thinking in terms of like, oh, wow, now she is actually the head of the household and things aren't all what she thought they were and just a lot of that kind of stuff. And so while she's always sort of given without strings, I think she's, I'm, I'm sitting and, and seeing her own occasional kind of resentments or frustrations around, wait, I should have maybe given more. She was always so impulsive, so in the moment right? Um, so that is, and that's a reminder to like, yeah, that's what it was like as a kid. If money was there, she spent it. There, but there were no conditions, but there was also not necessarily a thought in terms of what what she was building with that gesture. Mm-hmm. So it was very um, in the moment. It wasn't very in the Yeah, it was magical thinking, and it wasn't thinking about the future, but it was very generous. Um, yeah. No conditions, yeah. and very, but right. very spontaneous, you know, but very spontaneous. Yes. And very kind of like, it, it, I would say if there, it was very emotional, right? So if I caught her at the right time in the right way, um, then it was a yes, right? Like the, it just wasn't. So that's just how that was, and um, and and so when I think through all of that, it 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 both served me and also you know has created challenges for me because. Mm-hmm. What happened for me was I started a family very, very young at about 21, and um, I was married to somebody from another country and with a whole different set of values and beliefs around all kinds of things, and who was a laborer, a blue-collar, you know, laborer kind of worker, and very in the moment in his own way, Um, and I had you know I have to say there's this other this other piece I I grew up with a very strong uh opinion 
around material things. I became extremely anti-anything material. I think through high school I bought almost everything at a thrift store. You know, it was just like it was really a thing for me. I didn't want anything to do with that. So that also made me sort of feel like money didn't matter and I didn't really want anything to do with it other than whatever. It it was a means to an end for certain things, but for the most part I didn't care about it. It was this very kind of like headstrong, you know, beautifully uh, intentioned adolescent way of thinking. And, but I knew what I valued and, and some of those things haven't changed. So from the time I was pregnant, I had already become, I had already been in the realm of the healing arts. I, that began very, very young for me. Um, so healthy food was incredibly important to me. Having a doula was important to me. And I was researching schools by the time I was pregnant. So I knew okay. education, health, and food were going to be the places that my money went. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just the way that it, like kind of my non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. And, and so as I fast forward to – I, through the, I mean, through our marriage, but but also into single motherhood. And the other thing is, is I was going to be home with my kids. That was really important to me. Um, and so I did. You know, for the most part, I was home with them. I I worked in between to fill gaps, and I did what I could. But I really considered myself a stay-at-home mama, and that was really that felt really important um, for the majority of their youth and like their younger childhood. And I, when, when my ex-husband and I um, separated and divorced, we, he handed over full custody to me and um, legal and physical. So it was kind of everything. And that was everything to me because another thing that had been really, really important to me and had become, become this kind of strong value was that I was not going to go into the court with my kids if at all possible, um, for a variety of reasons. And one was that I had been a nanny to some, I had been witness to a couple of very horrible, long custody battles and financial battles. And I watched what it did to the kids and, and to the parents. And I just thought, and I also felt disgusted by what I was seeing in terms of, wow, nobody wins if the couple resolves meaning like inside of the, you know, family court system, there's no win if the couple resolves. So I didn't see a whole lot of motivation for resolution. And I realized that that's one way of looking at it, and we're also talking about, you know, 15 years ago. Um, But I felt very strong about that, that my kids were not going to go into the court system and that I was going to do everything I could to protect them from that. So let and, me ask you, um, yeah, Danielle, yeah, can I ask you no, a few no, questions about that? Absolutely. Yeah, so here you are, um, young 20s. You had your three boys in your 20s and mm-hmm. were, had really strong um, priorities, you know, and a really strong mm-hmm. philosophy at that time. You knew your values. Um, you knew it was important to you. Um, did you, you know, I, I want to know how you two were doing money, um, were you talking about money? Did you have fights about money? Was this a non-issue in your marriage? Was this one of the reasons you broke up? You know, I mean, you were so 
young, and yet I'm I, I'm just amazed how clear you were with values and priorities and all of that. Um, but I think back to myself in my 20s, and I did not know how to talk about money yet. Or how, I, I wouldn't have known how to do any of that. Where where were you right, around right. money in your marriage during that time? Well, I think, okay, so I was. I was definitely strong in those opinions. Um, I kind of I kind of see now like how the 20s to the 40s, and there's a beauty to having kids in your 20s because I think as so many – adolescent minds are, we're so sure of ourselves, right? Um, whereas in our 40s, I think so often we're like, well, what I know is that I don't know what I don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of our marriage and money, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the thing that that was the hard piece between us. It also wasn't a beautiful piece between us. It was, I'm going to do what I need to do, and I'm going to figure out a way to do it, was kind of my attitude around the things that mattered to me. Um, my financial skills, and it's interesting because I actually also was working um, in accounting at the time, but my financial skills were terrible I had the same kind of emotional tendencies that my mom did it's just that the things I was emotional about were different right you know they were my values so um you were working in accounting I didn't know that <laughs> yeah well my stepmom was a CPA and so my one of my very first jobs in fact yeah when my dad passed away when I was pregnant with my oldest and I was working there at the time so I did that and I did accounts payable and accounts receivable for years not funny the yes. different things that we do <laughs> yeah right um, but it's, and you I know so cuz some people usually just do one or the other accounts receivable they don't know the whole picture right the, the whole, whole gamut. in and and out yeah right I did more accounts payable than accounts receivable, um, but she was a CPA and she was pretty hardcore and she wanted me to do all of the things. And then from there, I went worked for two different corporations doing primarily accounts payable and became accounts payable manager and did that. Was <laughs> and that translating? Like, was that translating to your personal finances? Were you tracking at home no, at all or not? Not, no. not well. Not well. I mean, I love... No, you know, it's interesting. I, um, so another piece that I'm sure informs everything that I had no idea at the time. In fact, it's only been probably, I've, I've done healing work and therapy of some sort from the time I was probably, well, I was about 15 years old, um, maybe even a little bit younger for a variety of reasons. And one of them has been, what was never named at the time, but anxiety is a pretty significant anxiety disorder, which is now diagnosed as a significant complex PTSD. So all of that was kind of this undercurrent that it's amazing. It's amazing the coping mechanisms that we, that are clever, beautiful, brains and beings come up with in order for us to be able to cope and survive. Um, and so sometimes the more mundane things are the things that would, would slip through my fingers. Uh, and I was just holding a lot, 
because I was married to someone who saw his role as a very, very finite and rather small contribution. So his feeling was he goes to work, he comes back, he creates a paycheck, whatever that paycheck is, I need to make it work. And he wasn't really available, you know, for conversation. And he was so young too, yeah. right? So I have to allow for that as well. He was so young too, and he certainly didn't. I mean, he was he was born and grew up in Egypt and moved to California when he was about ten, and um, and a child of gas station owners, and he grew up working. So he was a very hard worker. Um, but I can remember. So the things I remember fighting with him in the very beginning is that he worked six days a week and was barely being paid. And uh, so some of our biggest fights in the beginning were me sort of really, really, really pushing in that young way um, for him to question that and to look at what he was doing to his body and to his life and is this really what he wanted and and how else could he restructure this and what and whatnot. Um, so I think for me, you know, I just always thought he could he could do and be so much more, right? Classic young relationship, wanting wanting to see that possibility that you see in your person come to fruition. Yeah, um, and we can in, even as adult. I mean, even as the older version of us, we can still look at our partners and see, oh, I still do. see them, Absolutely. you know, and see them. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, for yes. what we see yes, yes. and believe them to be and, and get strong Absolutely. and, you know, hold them to it. And, yeah. And I think, actually, I think in some ways it's a very beautiful thing. I mean, who you know, for us to see them in their totality, I suppose, yes. um, can be a really beautiful thing. And it can also be that I just, I, I know that I do it, I experience it differently now than I did then. Um, in terms of in terms of my expression of that so so please share you know you two separated and you got full custody yeah and then you were a single mama for an entire decade yeah so so I wanted I wanted uh eventually I really came to terms with the fact that I wanted out of my marriage. And that was a extraordinarily difficult thing for me because, you know, two of the promises I had made to myself when I became a mama was that I wasn't going to move my kids around like I did. I was going to give them stability and I was going to give them an intact family. So the grief, and pain and the years it took me to get to the place of this is ending, I'm done with this, was was excruciating and continued to go on for years and years. And I remember one day a therapist I was working with said at one time, because I couldn't believe the grief I was in years after. And and it was such an interesting thing to be in so much grief and yet not want to be with that person, Mm. right? So it wasn't like there was a a fix. Um, And I remember them saying to me, this is going to be a living grief, and so make some space for it. 
Um, and that was one of the most useful pinnacle moments for me of, of because what had happened for years and years, both in and out of the marriage, every time I'd get hit with a wave of grief, I would go into a second-guessing spiral. Okay. What have I done? Okay. It shouldn't feel like this, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so allowing for, oh, it can be a both and. It can be this massive grief and still be the right decision yeah. was so essential for me to know. And what happened was um, it was so important to me that I do everything I could to make our separating and divorcing as gentle as possible. And there was a couple of reasons for that. One was I was terrified of him. It was part of why I couldn't be married to him. And two was I loved him dearly. He was like a brother to me, which sounds so strange, but in many ways that, you know, we had lived through life together and I had not had somebody in my life in that way. Um, so I loved him and I didn't want to cause him pain. And then thirdly, I really was kind of creating a new vision and fantasy that we would still get to be family. And so I wanted to leave it as gently as possible. So I did end up hiring a lawyer um, because I wanted to make sure I was doing it right, but I, I didn't have him served. I asked him to come. I told him what we were doing. I asked him to come to lunch with me and to go there. And so we went to the attorney's office, and they technically served him, but we were, like, sitting at the table together. Um, and so I tried to do as many things like that as possible, and we did end up talking about money. So they ran the disamaster, which is the calculation that they plug in to find out what you should be paid uh, if you're a stay-at-home, you know, depending on what your scenario is, who owes who child support and alimony and whatnot. Um, and it turned out that there were a couple of things. One is because I had been diagnosed with Lyme disease, I was eligible for a lifetime alimony. Um, and then the second piece was, our child support number came in to what I thought at the time was on the higher side because he had had a good year. And um, so we talked about it, and I remember sitting at a little Mexican restaurant with him and saying, you know what, I don't want alimony, number one, and I don't uh, – I think we should pick a number that you can sustain Rather than us picking a number based off of this year, this way you have the comfort of knowing if there's a rough year, it's still inside of something that you can sustain. Mm -hmm. And so we negotiated that way because what I felt was, and, and in exchange, he knew he had an anger issue. And so this conversation happened after he had had, you know, one of his moments. And um, and in that space, he was softer, and he also agreed. He said, "You know, I don't, I, I don't want full custody. I don't, I don't need custody. I want to see my kids and be with them, but I don't need that." And for me, that was everything for so many reasons. Um, one, he still wasn't a citizen here; he was an Egyptian citizen. And if, God forbid, he had gone on some you know, thought of who knows what, um, I could have happened, lost them. Which happened. Yeah, it does. I know it feels so extreme and dramatic, but, you know, Mama Bear goes to 
to that and to full protection, right? And especially when you are with somebody who has volatile tendencies. Um, and so that was the most important piece for me. So I felt very like, let's negotiate on the money as much as possible because I still carried this, I'll always figure out the money. It'll always figure itself out one way or the other. Um, so we sat there, we negotiated it, and we came up with our number, and that was that. And Let me jump in because so many women yeah, are terrified about the money. They're yeah. terrified. They didn't learn the skills. They don't know how to do it. They have their version of magical thinking or they, you know, on and on and on. They're terrified to leave a marriage for many reasons, and sometimes on the surface it's because of the money, because they'll lose the money, because they don't know how to do money, because they're afraid of uh, being able to make their own way and being able to provide for the kids. So you just had this strong belief that you could figure it out. You had to be so brave in this moment to, to you know, very. It yes, I did, but it didn't feel about the money. It felt, and so I think this was a blind spot for me. I, I it was brave because um, I was terrified terrified but of so many other things and the anxiety that lived in me anyways was so significant but I really think that um, I can't take any credit for being financially courageous because I don't think that I was being particularly financially aware I, I would feel very different faced with that scenario now than I did then um and maybe that's also because I'm 43 now and I was 20, let's see, 28-ish then. Um, and so, and I didn't care about money. I care a lot more about money now than I did then. You know, so so I don't feel like, I don't feel like I was financially courageous. I felt like I just thought, okay, that, that part seemed so insignificant compared to everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So what yeah. was it? I know there's a few threads that will continue about that happened with this discussion that you sat him down with to have about you don't want the lifetime alimony and what is a reasonable child support amount that we can both agree with, that feels reasonable that you can commit to, right? And I know yeah. that that thread continues into a big moment that happened years and years and years later, just this last year. But share a little bit about single mamahood and, you know, the pros and cons. How did you do it financially? Well, yeah. So I think that um, we had our conversation. We agreed on amount. We moved forward. I... Um, in terms of how I did it, in certain ways I lived really, really small. Um, we didn't have big houses or anything like that, but that wasn't important to me. I wanted the closeness with them anyway. I did care about where we lived, and I continued to care about where they went to school. So I would say one of the biggest things for me as a single mom uh, in terms of getting my children the things that I wanted them to have was my willingness uh, to ask, you know, to go to the school and say, what can I do? How can you work with me? 
what's possible here. I've got these, you know, I would really, I, I can't tell you how many times I've said having three amazing boys, because here's the funny thing about being a mom of multiple sons. People here, you have three sons and they like, you know, want to give you a chair. You know, they're like, sit down, you must need a break. Are you okay? How do you do it? You know, there's mm-hmm. so much like, and they don't, you know, they're not typically inviting you over for dinner. <laughs> Right? Especially when it's three boys that are, you know, seven and under. Um, so having three boys that are a contribution, and I knew my kids were. They were far from perfect, but they were good. And I, those are good demographics for people. So I can't tell you how many times I would go to a school or a, or a, a learning institution of one form or another and say, I've got these three amazing boys. And here's my skills and talents, and here's what I can do, and where can you meet me? Are you willing to work with me? Hmm. And that became sort of the conversation that I had again and again with with many people in places. And, um, and I didn't have – I didn't have an, a big attachment to my own personal – you know, my work was very much twofold. My work in terms of my work in the world was either a means to an end in order to get, you know, our needs met, or it was something in the healing realm because that was part of what I was doing for myself in order to stay and be as well as possible. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't like I had... I had never really had the luxury of of growing a big vision for myself. And because of that, that made it easier to be extremely flexible. So, for example, I had my kids at a really nice – I only had two of them. Is this true? No, I think I – no, I had all three of them. So I had them at a really nice – but my little one wasn't in school yet. And I had all three of them at a really nice um, private school. And I was inside of their tuition adjustment program. But it was still a massive stretch. And it's really – you know, this is a whole other thing that I would absolutely love to talk about is the different ways that people choose to offer uh, tuition adjustment or scholarship programs, because it's amazing how some institutions do it in this sort of, we're going to do this for you, but our expectation is that you get up to where we are in terms of what you can pay, which really means that you get affluent, right? Yep. Um, right. Which is very, very different than the institutions that say, oh, we recognize that socioeconomic diversity is a gift in and of itself. And so, yeah, we actually have a place for you at what you can afford. It's a very different mm-hmm. approach. Uh, but anyway, so they were at this school. And it, was, it was lovely, but it was really tough. And I was very randomly, I mean, such a, I suppose, serendipitous moment where somebody caught me doing what they considered an exceptionally kind deed. I simply gave someone a ride home. But I didn't know that person, and that person happened to be a teacher. And it was just this really strange unfolding. And I get a phone call one night at the end of summer where I'm kind of like in my own anxiety of, oh, my God, am I signing up for another year of this tuition, and how am I going to do it? And I get this phone call, and they say, uh, we've lost our 
kindergarten, our second kindergarten teacher, would you come in? Would you be willing to come in? And I thought, are you kidding? Uh, I'm not a teacher. And yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I just went for it because, again, I had that kind of fluid, flexible, show me the way sort of way of being. And that got my kids into the school tuition free. I um, love it. So I want to say something about this. I mean, because yeah. you're a living example of what Bernard Lyotard, the Belgium economist who came up with the concept of the euro, um, who's also written extensively about yin and yang currency and the difference and how any culture society needs both. And yang currency is the existing money system. Yin currency is mm. all the trade and barter and mm. different versions of exchanging our time and energy and skill sets and, you know, superpowers and all of that. And he talks about, you know, societies fall apart when they don't have both in place. And he talks about Bali being this wonderful example of having such a strong yin currency. So this whole story is you living, I mean, doing both. You know, you you were paying for intuition. It was an adjustment, but you were also volunteering or giving time. And you're you're just showing different, you're you're showing how you were living the yin and yang currency. And that that's... Hmm what you were doing. Um, that's such a sweet reflection. <laughs> with your family, that's what you were doing during the single mama period. I mean, it's how I grew my business at the beginning when I had to bootstrap. I was like, I don't have cash, but how can I trade, you know, and to get website design or whatever it was, you know, but you, this was one of the strengths or just one of the, I don't know, the yin and yang currency that you were living, one of the ways that you were you got through single mamahood, which is incredible. Yeah. Thank you. And, you know, it's interesting hearing you say that because what I, what a beautiful reflection, and I wish I could have carried in that way because I think um, I, I was strong, like I was strong-headed enough, and I was, it always came down to when it comes to my kids, this is just the way that it is. You know, there, that was just it. It was very simple. There was a simplicity and a purity um, to what I was going to make happen for them in terms of what I could. Um, but I think there also was a quietly growing shame. Um, it doesn't feel good to always have to ask in that way. And I don't think that that type of um, currency is 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 uh, frequently valued where I live or where many of us live. Um, but, yeah, that's, so that was very much how I got through um, was a lot of that sort of thing and yeah. a lot of hard conversations. And those conversations got harder and harder right. over time. So, mm. yeah, so that was that. And then um, – Harder and because – your your pride, you were feeling like you you didn't have another language. Um, as you were saying, this other currency, this yin currency, wasn't known, talked about, accepted. It wasn't part of the language. And so if you weren't right. using traditional currency, well, then, I don't know, all sorts of things, you know. It looks a little bit more like groveling sometimes, you know. Okay. And I think the other thing is, is that there may have been, when I think back and feel into it, 
there was exhaustion kicking in yeah. very significantly. And I think along with that, there was probably some unnamed and unconscious indignance um, in terms of in terms of having to constantly rehab that conversation, even with the same institutions, you know, where it's like, okay, can you, you guys, we've been at this school seven years, you know what's going on. Do you really, do I really need to go? It's, a, it's an interesting thing again, because so often what I see, I hear people say this a lot. I hear people say that, um, oh, it's always the people that, that you do a trade with or that are asking for a discount that end up showing up late or no showing or being a whole lot more work. And I've experienced it. I've experienced that with people myself. So I can't say that, you know, I'm not saying that I haven't experienced that or that that isn't true. But one thing that I try to keep in mind is, well, yeah, they're already overstretched in their lives. They're already coming from some sort of depletion, which is why they're asking for help. So this weird kind of expectation that we have, which is, okay, sure, yeah, I'll help you, but you're going to have to work extra hard, is kind of misguided. Not Maybe not always, but much of the time. If you have someone that's coming to you and saying, I love your thing or I need your thing, I can't afford your thing, can you help me? And right now, I don't have a whole lot even to give in exchange for it. Then I think it's our opportunity to say, yes, I can, or no, I can't. But to say, yes, I can, but I'm going to expect A through Z from you when they've already let us know that they're depleted yeah. In, yeah. in some form or another, it, it doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. And then it creates this kind of, I think it creates sort of a, um, an, an ineffective mirroring of who they are. And so I think that I was caught in that. I can remember the years of feeling like I'm never doing enough, and yet I continue to ask for help. And at the time, you know, my health has sort of gone up and down in terms of this chronic health stuff. And so there were times where the contributing piece, I couldn't give as much as I I wanted to. What I gave to society was mostly behind the scenes in terms of really making sure that I was contributing three sons that were going to be grown at some point that were a solid and healthy and and good men as I could. And that was taking all of my forces and energy. And there were times where I couldn't do much more than that. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of why it got harder, I think it was a, a bit of exhaustion, some indignance. And then also, you know, with my ex-husband, um, he would be consistent and then inconsistent in terms with of his, when and right, with his, with his payment. Yeah. Well, with his child support and with his support. So with how he showed up in their lives, um, with how much he expressed, expressed anger towards me, which had a really uh, dysfunctional effect on me. And so there were, there were some emotional cycles. There was how he showed up. And then there was the financial piece. And all of those things had their effect and impact. Um, and when he wouldn't pay child support for periods of time, which were always relatively short, but it's never a good time to miss your child support. It's never a good time. Mm. And 
I wouldn't have any recourse in my mind because court was not an option. And the fact of the matter is, had I stepped into a court situation, he would have most likely talked to somebody, whether it was a paid or unpaid attorney or anybody, and anybody giving legal counsel would have said, you need to get custody. And in most courts, it's a given that they're going to give that custody. And so for me, that was always just, it would play in my brain within two seconds. If I would think, that's it, I can't take it, I'm taking him to court. This would play out. I would know that I'd end up losing custody, partial custody. It just wasn't worth it. It was not a price worth paying. I'd rather accumulate debt or give up something else or work a little harder. And so that's what I would do. So I want to bookmark this whole moment or conversation of scholarship and discount or tuition adjustment and trade. And, you know, when is that side by side with when is there really a real need? When does a mom of three who's stepping into exhaustion, like when is that clearly seen and known and taken into account and all of that, right? And mm-hmm, then this whole mm-hmm. conversation about trade and scholarship. I want to bookmark that for yeah. maybe another interview in another moment. I, I want to talk more about that. I have so much to say about that. I know, right? It's okay, like so yes. Yeah, so let's please bookmark that. Um, and if you're open, I'd love to have you continue this thread, con- continue this story. Yeah which is where this eventually went. You also got remarried at 10 years or 11, after being a single mom for 10 years or how? So, well, yeah, I had been, let's see, I had been a single mom for 11 years when we got married. But what happened, so you, do you want me to dive right into the story? Yeah. Okay. All right. If you're, so, if, you're, if you're okay and ready. And, yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Hmm. Um, so eventually what happened was things sort of went on as status quo and status quo being kind of this, you know, undulating wave of moments that were better than others. But it was okay. And I also uh, – ended up at some, at a certain point when my kids, when my boys were, let's see, I think my youngest was six or seven. I took a full-time corporate job that was sort of a, a mashup of project management, art direction, and um, account management. Hmm. And it was, it was, it was a job and it was corporate and I learned a lot and it was, and I worked out again because I was so accustomed to asking for things. Um, I worked it out that I was able to work partly remote, which was very uncommon for that time. And I worked it out that when my kid was sick, I went and picked him up at school and made him a little nest under my desk and I brought him into the office. And these were kind of mine, you know, the, if you want me to work here, you're going to have to work with these things because this is what, this is what I got. Um, the strength of ask, asking, the the power the, of the power of asking, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's amazing to me how many people I will see just take something at face value and not it isn't in their mindset to ask. It's fat, and I'm sure I do it in other areas too. But when it comes to my kids, I'm good. <laughs> um, and so, so things were there, and I was I was really at a place where I felt like I kind of have things taken care of, and in you know it was also the first time that I was out of early childhood. I had a child in diapers or was nursing for nine years straight. So the way my kids were spaced, it was this really long thing. So having everybody kind of six and above was a big deal, and maybe even almost seven. And then, um, and then I met my current husband. And again, I tried so hard to do everything in a way that didn't create, didn't push the volatile, volatility buttons in my ex-husband. So I let him know ahead of time I had met somebody. I introduced them. You know, all the things I, I could think of to do um, to sort of soften all of that and make it all work out. And, and that was that. And it, it was okay. I mean, it was, it was, uh, tentative, but it was okay. And then um, I unexpectedly, after I think a year of our into our relationship, ended up pregnant with my daughter. And we were not married at this time. And we were living together. And, um, and when my ex-husband found out, he cut everything off, like everything. Um, things had been a little bit more tense with me being in relationship he did he wasn't happy about that but when he found out I was pregnant that was for him that was it and what that looked like was the other piece in terms of our child support agreement was that he was required to supply health insurance because he was the full-time employed consistently full-time employed person um, and and I have I I feel the need to also say he never had to take a sick day to take care of a sick kid he never had to you know, leave work early. He was very, I protected all of that and gave him all the support I could for him to do whatever he wanted with his career. Um, and so one day I'm, I have one kid who just injured himself in hockey and he's in a cast and another who is having some pretty significant asthma issues. And we don't go to the pharmacy often, but they had said that the break might get more painful here, go get this heavier Advil, essentially, and here you need to go renew your inhaler. So we're sitting at the pharmacy, and I, I go to fill the prescription, and they say, oh, your, your insurance is canceled. And I said, oh, we must need new cards. You know how they change out the cards. So I, go, I call George, and I say, hey, I'm at the pharmacy, and, um, and we must need new cards. And he says, no, uh-uh, I canceled the insurance. That's on you now. Hmm. And hung up. No explanation. And that was that. Nothing. No explanation. No, not in that moment. Yeah, I've made no. this decision. Yeah. Yeah, nothing. Meaning, no war. I, yeah, meaning and your whole agreement was, you know, you, you weren't going to get lifetime alimony, which he, you, he, you know, which you could have gotten. I was entitled to. Mm -hmm. Which you were entitled to. I was legally to. entitled to. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, and you weren't going to get the amount of child support that was initially offered, right? And Correct. you agreed on something more reasonable and for him to do health insurance, and he was in and out of making those payments for years, years. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I have to say he did more of making them than not making them. Okay. But there were these little seasons where he would get angry the first time I was dating someone, essentially. He cut off child support. Another time, it was Christmas time, and he always had a thing for some reason that would flare up in his own kind of, who knows, trauma story or something, because he always seemed to be more angry around that time of year, and he just stopped paying child support. So there were these, you know, there were these moments, these chapters, but outside of those moments, he was consistent. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't a situation, I know there's a lot of women out there who have people who don't, who maybe don't work or work off and on. He got fired occasionally because of the anger stuff, but for the most part he worked, and for the most part he'd pay it unless he was having – it was always pretty intentional. Like, I'm angry. This is one of the ways I'm going to punish you. Okay. Um, and, and so, yeah, so that was my first – I believe that that was my first hint. He may have actually missed a child support payment by then, but I, honestly I don't remember. Um, because what I remember was, was when the child support stopped coming, I kept thinking, he's going to come around. He's just angry. He's going to come around. The other thing that he did was he was in the car business, and because of the time when we had separated, um, you know, I'd been a stay-at-home parent, and all these different factors, uh, he, my car was in his name. And so he called me. At some point, I feel like this was just a little bit more into this whole season of of cutting things off and said, maybe like six weeks or something later, and said, you have to have that car to me by 5 o'clock or I'm calling and reporting it stolen. And and it was always such an interesting thing because he was able to do all of these things to me, one, because of where I stood around the court stuff, but I was also – I fed right into everything he had to say about me being bad and wrong. You know, so him punishing me worked because I felt punished worthy. Because you um, had left him, because you had left the marriage, because you... Well, I would say that, yes, I would say the initial things are because, I I mean, I still care, I carried the, I'm the one who wasn't give, having it. I'm the one who told, to ultimately said this marriage is over. Um, but I think even it probably goes, not probably, I know that that sense of me being bad or wrong goes way back before then, yeah. um, which was just a setup for being in the marriage to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so the child court stopped, the health insurance was canceled, and the car went away. And I'm in this relationship and I'm pregnant, I'm in this relatively new relationship that I'm having my own kind of freak out in terms of when my current husband came into my life and things got more serious, what really felt good to me was that he was kind of the icing on our cake. I had finally gotten to a place, not that I was ever trying to get to a place, but my feeling was, wow, I've, I've got this. I can take care of me. I can take care of them. We're good. Um, and so when he came into our lives, it just felt like this bonus, beautiful piece. Um, 
when I found out I was pregnant, I had to process and come to terms with this changes everything. This makes, I wasn't actually afraid of having another baby, but I was terrified of having another father and of having those kind of like, what are my expectations of him now? What are my needs from him now? All of those other pieces that felt, I, I suppose maybe more vulnerable um, is one way. I don't. I didn't think of it as that at the time, but it was just a different direction to the relationship than what I had anticipated. And so many fears of how is he going to be in terms of, I can't live with someone who sees this child as any different than these other three. And how is he going to be in that? You know, it's going to be everything depending on how he is. And I don't want him to be anything other than authentically himself. So it just felt so terrifying. Um, so I had all of that going on in my internal world. And then I had my ex-husband over here losing his mind. I mean, on top of cutting off all the child support and everything else, he started just being actively antagonistic, actively. Um, it was like all those little chapters and moments where he would do something that was mean or cruel or manipulative. He just compiled it all together. I mean, he would even, the occasions that I would get on the phone with him and try to get him to have a conversation with me, you know, he would say, like, let's see how long he can take it. Or, you know, you're not my problem anymore. And it was so fascinating to hear his language around, wow, he was never actually paying child support. He would tell me, I'm never giving you another dime. You no longer belong to me. It was really interesting. He truly did not see, he would say to me all the way throughout, I am a good father. I just don't need to pay you anymore. Yeah, yeah. He really saw it as he was giving me money, and he said, I was trying to show you the type of man that I was so you would find your way back to me, but you're not, so no more for you. Mm, and it, it was always about you. And if it, it was always about me. Yeah. It was always about you. Yeah. I mean, it feels parental moments, but it's also just like you're his property. You're his. Yeah. He owns you, owns everything. And it wasn't about his relationship with his children. No. And no. And it wasn't about providing for them. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. No. And actually, at that point, he started saying, if you want me to provide more, then to have them come live with me. And I was, now I'm thinking, oh, my God, no. So now I'm going to have two different families, number one, that they're not all going to be this, you know, united foursome. So that was, for me, that was not an option. And then, two, he was so angry and volatile and would, you know, say such horrible things to them about me that were so confusing, um, things like bedtimes. She gives you a bedtime because she's controlling. You know, so just kind of weird uh, things like that. I oh, trying to undermine, no yeah, trying to undermine your parenting, your style, your way, all yes. of it, your say. Yeah. So I know that there is a big lead up with all of this, and this went on for a long time. And then so two one and day, a half years. Yeah, two yeah. and a half years. Okay. Well, so two and a half years later, it went on for a very long time, two and a half years later, and by this time, actually, I would say, I know it's so hard to give this story in a short I know, version. I know, and I don't mean to be, like, condensing it, like, and now it happened, and now, but I, yeah. 
um, and we can always, you and I have talked about a part two and a part three, right? Um, yeah. So this feels really honoring for you, for everyone involved, right? Um, well, I think it's more that I just don't think, I think there's plenty of things that have been said here that are probably auxiliary to many, but to get to the part that's the end without knowing the wholeness of, of what led up to it isn't going to be necessarily as valuable. But I'll move through yeah. it as quickly well, as no, I can. Sh- share what else. Yeah, share what else needs to be shared until you yeah. woke up one day and said, I'm, I'm going I'm to. I'm ready for something ready. different. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I would say quite a ways in, around two and a half years in, I believe, I had had to make the hard choice that I now had a baby. She was now 18 months old. And here I was in this stable relationship with somebody who has a very stable income and a very, you know, beautiful career. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm now going to have to be a working mom with a baby because of this child support craziness. And that was a really bizarre thing. But, again, I wasn't willing to go to court. So I started a business and tried to do as much of it from home as possible or as much of it flexibly as possible. And I ooh, also ooh, went to child yeah, what hap- yeah, what happened right there? Because I know that you were in a relationship with someone who was making a really nice steady salary. So did you feel like you had to make your own money and have your own accounts and have your no. own money? Okay. So we were in my current marriage, and we still weren't married, um, but we were, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready. So we were engaged, and we were content, but there was so many other things, and I just needed to be as we were for a little longer. Um, But we, and we were figuring out how we were going to do money. You know, he had been a successful business person in the tech world for a long time with you know, had a big, beautiful house and drove a nice car and did a ton of travel and had this very lovely lifestyle um, and and didn't have a ton of responsibility, right, outside of himself and came into relationship with me. And, you know, all of a sudden, there's the child support goes away. I'm pregnant, so I'm not working in at a certain point. And, um, and we had bought a house. And we had bought the house thinking that the child support was, you know, with these things in place that weren't in place. And he did have a a little shift in his career that went, he went from being a consultant to an employee, which brought many benefits, but it also did lower the, the monthly dollar amount. So it was just this sort of like blend of events. Um, So it wasn't that we had said I needed to be financially responsible for my part it was more that uh, we were being hit from multiple sides with some financial realities. And even with his big, beautiful income, it wasn't quite enough because here's another major thing that happened. Once I became repartnered, the world no longer saw me as a single mama. Yeah. They saw me as repartnered and they based everything off of his W-2 income. Mm-hmm. When you have to provide that stuff for tuition and things like that yeah um which oh that's that's a whole other thing you know 
in and, in and of itself in terms of what that did um, as far as resources go. So the expectations of me were now that I should be able to pay full price for everything. Right, with four and kids. With four <laughs> kids, right, yep. right. Because they see that income and they, I don't know, people don't, I don't think that people recognize that when you repartner, if you didn't build the life together, there's probably going to be some significant financial adjustments or hits that have to be dealt with. Um, and in ours, we got kind of a triple whammy, you know, with all these other things yep, happening. All at the same time. So All so at the big, same time. So that's yeah. why I started a business. And I also simultaneously, I woke up one day and I walked into Department of Child Support Services and I said, I don't want to open a case, but I want to know what's so. And um, they told me. So they sat down and they looked at what our, you know, settlement was or our agreement was, and they did the math. Well, he hasn't paid for this amount, and here is what that means, and here's what the interest was, and it was a significant number. This was years ago. So this was back in, like, oh, goodness, early 2012, I think. Um, and, and so I then emailed him. And I said, now, I had been pleading with him for years, for two and a half years. I had been pleading with him. I'd send him spreadsheets. I'd show him, this is how much groceries are. This is what I want you to know. This is not money for me. This is for them. This is how this is going, all of this sort of thing. Another thing that he did, actually, is he went to the school at a certain point and said, we should be paying more than what we're paying you. And he increased our, our tuition amount. And well, I he wasn't just paying couldn't... any. He wasn't paying you. For that. No, he, he wasn't. That. He wasn't. Yeah. So he went to the school and asked for them to charge increase more, it. Increase we should be it. paying more. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I, okay. yeah. So, so anyway, so I sent him the email and I said, you, I suggest you go talk to a lawyer because I knew any lawyer in their right mind would say, uh, you better start paying because this is really adding up. And he did. And they did tell him that. And he came back to me and, and he proposed a new, he said, oh, I guess I was wrong and I guess I should have been paying you. Here's what I proposed. And it was very low and there were numbers that he kind of made up. And I didn't agree to it. And I let him know, I can't agree to this. This doesn't work for me. And he also wanted 50-50 custody and all kinds of other things. And he wanted me to waive all of the arrears. And I said no. But he started paying. So he started paying based off of his new agreement. Um, sometime in 2013, I believe that was. And and so we we started to receive something. Now, it wasn't enough. At this point, we had sold our house. We had gotten married, and there had, you know, there had been many ups and downs. And he continued to pay what he wanted based off of this agreement. And he just sort of never acknowledged the fact that I said no to it, and I didn't sign anything. And... And there were a variety of things that happened. Um, at a certain point in 2014, when my oldest was getting ready to graduate from high school, and oh my goodness, was that an emotional experience that I was not anticipating in terms of the level of uh, reconciling, you know, his childhood and my mothering experience and the grief of his of this being it and him being grown and saying goodbye to his childhood. And I was in such an emotional and tender, tender space. And this thought that here our son is going to graduate and there's just no 
friendship, no nothing between us. And I I had tried. His mom had gotten sick a couple years before and died. I I cooked for their funeral. I you know I was there every way I possibly could. And I remember reaching out to him at one point and saying, I remember thinking inside myself, I'm over it with the money. It doesn't matter anymore. I'm tired of this money story. I'm tired of waiting to see if he's going to come around and wanting that help. And I give. Forget it. Let's let's ditch the money thing and let's just have a parenting-based friendship. And I reached out to him and, and just said, can we just be friends? Forget about the money. And he he essentially said yes. And so we ended up having a conversation, and I said to him, you still have time to be the hero. Uh, you know, my son at the time was going to need a co-signer. And so he said, um, okay, let me let me get back to you. I need to. He was now remarried. I need to talk to my wife and get back to you. And the next day he calls me and says, I can't do it. I'm going to need to retire I, at some point, I can't take on that liability. What if he doesn't pay? Now, granted, our son was graduating valedictorian, had never gotten anything less than an A in his high school. There's no reason to think that this is somebody who would default other than he's human. So there's that. And I remember feeling like the anger, and I thought, oh, I said I was going to let go of the money stuff, and I'm not letting go of the money stuff. (laughs) And, uh, And then about five months later, he showed up, um, at one of our son's rowing regattas, and he announced that they were five months pregnant. And I I lost my mind inside. I didn't say a whole lot outside, but inside I remember walking back to the car and doing the math and thinking, okay, he had a vasectomy, number one, so he had to have paid for that. And the timing of when he said that he couldn't do the co-signing, he knew he was having a child, so it was just all kinds of stuff where I thought, oh, here I go. I bump up against this again and again, wanting this person to be someone they're not. And my inability to accept the truth of who they are. And uh, I lived with that for a little while. And I no longer felt much grace around the money stuff. And the struggle wasn't letting up. So this wasn't a principal thing. The struggle just wasn't letting up. So this kept going. I ultimately did go and speak to an attorney and she was amazing. And she was amazing because it wasn't the first time I had talked to an attorney, but this was a woman who said she really seemed to support and understand and just said, you know, if you can hang in there just a little bit longer, don't risk your custody in these precarious, you know, teenage years. And and when you're ready, it'll be time, and you can get that. You can get those arrears. And so I just sort of let that sit with me. And a couple of years later, um, just this last April, I woke up one morning. I didn't say a word to anybody, and which wasn't an intentional thing. It's just a fascinating thing to me how um, sometimes these big moments in my life, and I'm sure this is true for many people, it's this stuff that's incubating inside of us. And when we actually birth it, when we live it, it can be such a quiet uh, expression. And I woke up one morning and I went to child support services and I said, here's my scenario. And these are all the years that he didn't pay. And this is what he's been paying since then. And here's the discrepancy between what he thinks he should pay and what he should pay in terms of 
um, what's legally required of him and what can I do? And I filed right in that moment. And I, you know, at any other time I would have been so careful in how I handled him and in all of it. And at this point, I didn't feel the need to do that. Mm. I had asked so many times for him to work with me. I was in this moment. Really what happened was when I woke up that morning or during, you know, figuratively woke up that morning, I remember the feeling that I had was, oh, my goodness, my oldest is going to be 18 soon. I need to slay this dragon while it's still here for me to slay. Because, yes, this is about the money, but, of course, it's also about so much more. And it was, it truly was about the money in terms of um, it wasn't a principal thing. But the so much more for me was about standing in my own power against this visible and invisible force of anger and control that even though it wasn't there in my everyday life anymore, was still so there. Um, And this actually gave me the platform to do that. And I knew that, you know, if this went away, if my youngest turned 18 and it went away, I wouldn't ever really be able to confront it in that way. And I didn't really want to see how the universe might present it in a different iteration, um, if that's really a thing. I thought it's here and it's available and I'm ready. Let's do this. And I'm ready because I'm ready and I'm ready because my kids are no longer vulnerable in the way they would have been. You know, I've got two over 18 and one who is almost there. Nobody's going to make them do anything. Yep. Yep. Including have to stand up and say where they want to live. So I went in, I did the thing and they, for the most part, took it from there. And it was a precarious, it started in April and it resolved in September. So it was rather quick. Um, It wasn't perfect. And we managed to get, I managed to get through it without any, uh, other than I consulted with an attorney twice, but I decided to not be represented for a variety of reasons. Um, I Fiscally, it didn't seem to make sense. It seemed counterintuitive, and um, I just didn't want to do anything that would, like it would, for me, one of my fears, and it was to go down a road with all of this and then suddenly have all that money be lost to legal fees is outrageous. And the number at this point was very significant. So, um, So he reached out to me once he was, uh, he didn't reach out to me initially. In fact, he initially what he did was he filed for a adjustment of the uh, standing child support order, which was smart because it, he needed to do that. Um, so we went through that process without much conversation. He hired an attorney, and then he they levied his accounts, and that's when I got a phone call from him, you know, panicking. You need to make them stop. You need it. And all I could think to myself was, one, how did you have the money to hire an attorney but not pay your child support? Mm-hmm. And two, you have money in an account to be levied. Yep. Like, that's amazing, yep. right? Um, so all of that felt very reinforcing. You know, this was not a, I was not driving this man into the poorhouse by any imagination. So from there, we uh, we just sort of hobbled our way through it. There were a handful of conversations. 
I held my ground for the most part, and I was also very generous in terms of um, the amount that he owed me was really quite significant, and I felt very patient. I would have had no problem with him paying that off over his lifetime or over 10 years or whatever it took. But he, in his intense sort of way, felt the need for it to go away immediately. I want it done. I want it done. I want it done. I need to make this go away. And I'm thinking to myself, how on earth are you going to come up with this significant amount of money? And I really had to sit with um, the negotiated amount was about half of what he owed. And for me, that came down to me coming from, as best as I could, a fiscally intelligent place. So here I am sitting on some debt, and what's more valuable to me, getting less from him, but getting still a significant amount in one lump sum, or getting all of it from him over a period of time, and also knowing that this is a man who I cannot rely on and who has shown me again and again that if there's a way out, he'll find it. And so ultimately, I think my um, my feelings of that met with his desire to just make this go away, and we settled on an amount um, that was half of what he owed, and he paid it in one lump sum. In one moment. In, in one, one moment. Sum. In one in very one bizarre moment. Yeah. So the whole thing ended in September when we had our court date. So at this point, everything had been negotiated. We had both gone in and signed on our own. Essentially, they ask you to come into court because – they want to know that, that A, that I wasn't coerced um, and that I really am in agreement with this. Um, so it's this very bizarre experience because you're called forward together and you're kind of standing, you walk up the aisle and you're standing at the front of this aisle in front of this official person. It was just such a, I would have loved to have photographed it. It was such a surreal, in some ways beautiful, but beautiful in definitely the most shadowy of ways um moment and they asked us both if this is what we agreed to this is a very short version and uh we said yes and he stormed out and within 10 days i had my payment and, and you that. and you, and that was that and you had sent out an email a few days before a week before um to a few close girlfriends saying will you please hold space for me and you're someone that is some you you do things so personally so privately um i think that single parenting for so long made you so determined and so able and had such a strong full <laughs> capacity to do things on your own but you also did reach out um to to just say can you please hold this moment for me hold this moment of me going to court at this time for me, yeah? Yes, yeah. Uh, so you're right. I mean, I grew up as an only child, and there's all kinds of layers with that in terms of um, what I was taught with regards to privacy and keeping things that are hard or could be perceived as ugly, um, personal. And so in, it's, in, in my single mom years, it, this is a whole other thing, I didn't really identify as a single mom, primarily because I didn't want what could have felt like any sort of stigma. That's one of those areas of grief for me, because had I owned it and allowed it, I could have probably 
um, had more support just even internally in terms of um, swapping that shame for something else, something more, more nourishing. Yeah. And so, yes, I made a very conscious decision with this because my way has been to be so just dig deep into the earth and do what I need to do kind of thing. Um, I made a very conscious decision to, to share, I'm going to go do this thing. Here's what, you know, here's a little mini backstory and, and think of me and send me your strength, if you will. And I very carefully selected who that circle of support would, of energetic support would be. And it felt so, um, so deeply valuable to me to have that and to do that. And so here's a story of, an, of a journey that was enormous money challenge that went on for years and years and years and years that you were trying to overcome, trying to work with, try to, trying to have conversations about, trying to get to the bottom of, get through, you know, at so many different moments. Um, and then it took some really strong action one day when you woke up you know, with all your numbers, and it took a lot of time to get those numbers and get those spreadsheets in place, and then to show up and ask for this. Um, yeah. And then to be met, you know, to be met by the system, which doesn't always happen, to be met by him, even though he was so angry about it and wanted it dealt with immediately, he had the funds, and he he said yes. Um, and he. I have no idea how he had the funds. He had to have gotten a loan or something. It's a crazy and amazing yeah yeah so this is a huge thing that took years to overcome and, and there are lots of other money challenges that happen along the way are you sitting now this was just you know april through september this is just a few months ago this that this all ago. yeah happened came to completion it would have been amazing to have you know, a photographer, photography, you know, taking photos of you, you know, as you I said. Know. Oh, my God, mm-hmm. you know. So you have all those moments and photos in your mind, you know, of what that happened. How are you months later? Do you feel triumphant? Do you feel successful? Do you feel some peace? Do you feel you let go of a layer, a few layers of grief? Hmm. So, okay, so first I want to just acknowledge that I just said something, and I think this is important because I have a feeling that many women do this or many people in this situation because I'm sure there are men that have gone through their own version of this as well. I just said, I don't know how he had that money. He must have got a loan. The truth is I don't know how he had it, and for all I know, he's got plenty. And I think sometimes one of the things that can get in our way is we, you know, we assume that they really are giving us all they can or whatever. And so I just want to say that even now in this moment, my tendency is to um, justify not. Yeah. Yeah. Not justify, maybe not see clearly and whatnot. So as far as um, where I am with this at this point, I would say that I'm integrating still. I would say that, yes, There have been significant moments of triumph, particularly really, really much more around the the emotional, mental, psychic triumph of I did the thing. You know, I, I stood in my power. 
I said this isn't okay, and I took a leap of faith with the system, and it's a system that I've been so afraid of. And for the most part, I mean, there were a couple of hiccups along the way that I would was not comfortable with in terms of how the system met me, but for the most part, I feel blessed and lucky and, and met, um, and I feel proud of myself, and I know that that piece I will carry forward, and I feel so you know, those moments, you know, there's so many times where we maybe don't listen to our intuition or we don't do the thing and we can't get back what we've lost. That's just, that's life. We have to grieve it and hopefully grow in our acceptance, but we can't get it back. We might get a new version of it, but we don't get it back. So this is one of those times where I don't have to grieve that. I did the thing inside the time frame, and that feels really good. I do, you know, I I did have other stories running simultaneously. I remember feeling like, who knows, maybe this will be the thing that brings him, you know, into right relationship and wants to have this restored experience with us. And that clearly is not the case. He has not had, he's had even less of a relationship with them over the last couple of years. I think he's seen one of them once in the last two and a half years, maybe three years. Um, So, you know, that's there. And again, that's where I get to remind myself it's a living grief and I can still have space for that. So there's a, there's a myriad of things. And then knowing how to best steward that money. Right. Is a whole other thing. Exactly. So, You slayed this dragon that mm-hmm. kept coming around, was around for years and years and years. You slayed it, and you did mm-hmm. it in the time frame that you needed to, and your children, your boys, your girl got to see this. Mm-hmm. They did. You know, they got to witness mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, they got to see their mama do this. Um, and now post, it is integrating. There is living grief still. And then there is how to steward this money in the best way, which is going to be something that you're going to be figuring out over the next year. You know, whenever there's a lump sum, whether mm-hmm. it feels like a windfall, it's just a chunk of money. You know, there's there's excitement, there's fear, there's I want to do this well, what should we use this for? Mm-hmm. There's many internal and external conversations that need to happen. Um, yeah, and, and the fact of the matter is, as big as this is, I have a really big life. So there's all this yeah. other life stuff that has continued, you know, that continues yeah. to happen, and there's needs yeah. to be met, and yeah, yeah. So say one thing about that, just as far as like, you know, setting you forth after this huge slaying of the dragon, stepping you into integration, still some grief to be living with. That's lifelong. But what is next year as far as stewarding? How how is there one thing that you know you want to use this money for or hold this money for or one thing, one next step that you know 2018 is with 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 this chunk of money. So, I have allowed there to be sort of a parameter of up to half of it, I'm willing to let be used for debt or needs um, 
kind of the present time needs and debt. And the other half of it, which is the half that I would consider sort of what you're what you're naming in terms of the 2018, that I feel like it just has to sit right now. Yeah. Like it just has to sit for so many reasons. I I want the experience of the just sitting with it and the holding it and the and the allowing for um the presence of a lump sum and and I want to have a whole lot of certainty before I do anything next with it if that makes sense. So right now it's really a, it's a matter of it's being held unless and until something comes forward that says, "Ah, this is the thing. This is where this needs to go." Wonderful. Wonderful. Danielle, I just want to thank you for everything that you've shared, knowing that there's to be continued on all of this. There is so much more, and I know that some of these stories have never been shared with more than a few close people, Um, and even imagine this being shared with the larger art of money community or beyond that I'd love to hear is there anything else or anything else that needs to be shared just as a way to help complete just the stories that you've begun to share Um, Mm. right now is there any one more piece Um, yeah anything else for now that would be helpful for you to share that you don't want to leave this conversation without saying I think the two things that pop into my mind, one is I'll be so curious to hear how how these stories land for people and I'm absolutely available for kind of a – I would imagine if I were the one listening to this story at any point along my journey, I would find myself wanting to ask questions. <laughs> and so I'm absolutely available in whatever way makes sense to answer if there are questions that come up. And then secondly, I just, I have to say, I feel very complete in this telling of um, of the story. And the only additional piece is that, my goodness, Barry, you are so, so beautifully talented and such a wonderful um Interviewer isn't quite the right word, and I know that this is all such a given and so obvious given who you are and the skill that you bring and the the therapist that you are and all of those other pieces, but what a beautiful, beautiful experience that you are both creating for me and my telling and sharing and for others, and, and thank you. You're welcome. I really appreciate hearing that. You're my last interview of this money memoir series, and I've also, alongside of all of this, have done about, I don't know, 10 to 15 other interviews for TAs and podcasts. It's been a crazy interviewing time, but today I just woke up going, it's Danielle. <laughs> mm. I I feel, you know, so connected to this woman on so many levels. We share so many different roles with each other. Right. Which I love, you know. I can't always do that with everyone. So you and I have so many different roles. You're 
I'm your client, you've been my client, you've been my photographer, you know, you've seen me naked or partially naked or, you know, there's so <laughs> been, you know, you've taken the cover of the of of my book. There's, you know, there's just been, there's so many different roles that we share. So I just woke up going, this is it, you know, make it as good as it possibly could be. And I was just so honored and excited to get to hold space for you and your story. Thank you for joining me with this money memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps, and blends therapeutic, body-based practices with real-life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the Art of Money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.